Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host, uh, bringing another hour of podcasting greatness to you. And this week I am joined by uh, ex-Scientologist, ex-Sea Org member, newly minted author, Mike Rinder. Uh, Mike, I really, I mean, really on my channel, you really don't need any real introduction, but welcome, welcome to my show and my channel. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure always to talk with you. It's like, uh, you know, I feel like there's no audience out there. When we talk, it's just like you and I chatting about it's like when i talk to john atac too it's, it's sort of the same thing yeah i have to be careful because they get into too much uh inside baseball jargon etc and you know people lose track because i'm like oh yeah but chris but yeah, bup, 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 <laughs> exactly. you, know, you know this and bup, 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 and you know that person and blah blah anyway it's great to be here man it's nice to see you i yeah. know uh we don't see each other that often. We nope. should see each other more often than we do, but it's at least a, a Zoom is sort of a, a poor substitute to uh, an in-person get-together. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. And by the way, I love your T-shirt. I want to get one. Thank you. <laughs> I, I decided I'd go totally informal like I always do, so... Uh, why fancy it up now, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've got my Florida outfit on shorts, a short sleeve shirt and flip flops. Perfect. Perfect. Ah, yeah, we're having some decent weather too, by the way. So I hope, I hope the same for you guys in the wake of uh, Ian. It's very nice now. It's Good. like, you know, 80 degrees and sunny and not that humid. So it's very pleasant. This is a good time of year to be in Florida. Between now and March is like, the good period. Ah, got it. Good. Yeah, I've been there during the summer, and it's not the good period. <laughs> That's for sure. True. Boy, you guys got some big bugs down there. Um, okay, a billion years. They're my... all in the Fort Harrison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A billion years, my escape from my life in the highest ranks of Scientology is your new book. You are doing press for it. It's going great. I watched... Uh, yeah, I watched your interview with Megan. It was awesome. <laughs> and, She's terrific. Uh, she, she is. She is. Yeah. Like I got. A, I, I took some some stick from people that are like, uh, you know, what are you going on uh, with a with a Republican bot? Blah blah blah. Right. Right. Got to tell you, out of all of the journalists that I have dealt with, Megan Kelly is a the best prepared. B the least intimidated by Scientology. See the absolutely nicest person off camera, and D asks really intelligent questions because she actually understands the subject. Correct. So, yeah, I will you know, give her that. I will totally. I, give her I that. think I think she's terrific. Politics aside, yep, she's she's a a, a champion of bringing the bringing the news about Scientology to the world. Yeah. I have to agree with you. I was I was impressed by her prep, and she really did ask good questions, and uh, and that was a great interview you did with her. Um, okay, well, I have some questions myself, and oh. uh, so many. <laughs> I know we're not going to be able to cover everything in this time we have today, but we you know we will thumbnail or bookmark for some future uh, work as well. Um, so I wrote these down, so it's going to sound a little formal, but here we go. 
Um, this book was amazing, by the way, and everything I've heard about it, looked at, et cetera. I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing, but I've you know plowed through bits and pieces. And um, and I wanted to talk first about the recovery, you know, because as I see this book is sort of a capstone or a a, a key part, a key milestone at least in in a recovery journey. Absolutely, to, right? Absolutely, Chris. I I say in the in the epilogue of the book that once I finished writing, it was the first time I stopped having the nightmares that I was back at gold. Wow. Like, this, this, this is not something that is unique to me, Chris. Every person that I know who was at the int base or gold, uh, who has escaped has had recurring nightmares mm-hmm. like PTSD symptoms, yep. which is exactly what that is, yep. of being trapped back there. Like somehow they got me back and now I can't get away again. And those things have been going on for 14 years. Oh, wow. Wow. I still, and and some people that is still going on. And uh, one of the great things that happened uh, is at the end of the writing the book, when I finally got done writing it, and it took me a long time to put this thing together, believe me, uh, way longer than it should have, but nevertheless, a long process. It, the nightmare stopped and I have not had another one since then. And that's now been, you know, like nine months really since I finished writing it. Excellent. That's great. So, yeah. It, it was, and and the process of of writing the book was also itself pretty emotional and cathartic. I mean, I had started writing this book a long time ago, and my my problem always was there is so much to cover. Mm-hmm. Like, and everybody is like looking and going, well, why didn't you talk about this? Or why didn't you mention this? Or why didn't you cover this? Or why didn't you do that? And I'm like, holy tamale, how am I ever going to pull this together in a fashion that is going to sort of satisfy the, the, the curve at the top? Like you'll never satisfy everybody. I know that I knew it at the beginning, but you don't want to have so many people dissatisfied that it's like, oh, this sucked, or go so far on the other side of people going, like, I can't get through this because there's too much detail about minutia. Yes. yes. So I started by putting together a, like a time track history of my life and tried to get as much of the just factual skeleton in place because. The other thing that always I knew would happen is, as you know, Chris, Scientology has files on everything. Yes. Every single thing. I mean, they've got people combing through the records of every flight I took to everywhere in in my entire career in Scientology. Mm -hmm. Every hotel I stayed at, every date I was here, every date I was there. Where was I? Where was Miscavige? Where was I? Where was Pat Broker? Where, like, all of this stuff to come and nitpick 
my recollection of events because I don't have that. Mm -hmm. I don't have those records. They didn't give me anything when I left, not even photographs of my history in the Sea Org. So it concerned me that Scientology would come up with here's our DA pack and he wasn't here then and he couldn't have seen this then and he didn't, you know, like. Oh, totally. Catch you out on all so, the little things. Yeah. And then say, well, see if he got that wrong. I mean, they did it with Larry Wright because Larry Wright had a typo in his book that said, you know, the, the, uh, the publication date of Dianetics was May 10th, 1950 or something. He was like, oh my God, look at that. He got it wrong. Oh, if he got that wrong, he must have everything wrong. Right. So I put together as good a, a sort of timeline as I possibly could and then started fleshing it out. And then I got a, an editor to help me who was part editor, part therapist. Mm. And what I mean by that is what she really did, and she is just a wonderful person who I became very dearly attached to, she would read what I had written and then say, let me ask you a question about this. What were you thinking at that moment? How were you feeling about that? What was going through your mind? What was happening? Because I tend to, at least originally, write a something that was more akin to a legal brief. Just the okay. facts, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Here is what happened. This happened. Then that happened. Then this happened. Then that happened. And I had a lot of that stuff laid out in great, great specificity. But she was like, yeah, but you have to be here. You have to be present in this book. It can't be as if you're an outside observer watching and simply writing a report about what happened in your life. You've got to communicate to people what you were going through in your life. Right. And that entailed a lot of painful recollections of things and having to sort of dredge up emotions, which, as you know, Chris, one of the things that you sort of get hammered into in Scientology and particularly in the Sea Org and particularly in management is do not have emotions. Emotions are mis-emotion. Mis-emotion is human emotion and reaction. That is a barrier to production. You must not emote. And exactly. No case on post. That's it. No yep. case on post. Yep. So... This was not the easiest um, process to go through, but I feel it was very, very, um, in the end, very beneficial to me. And I, I think very beneficial to the book itself because I hope that the book imparts some measure of how do you get sucked into something like this so heavily that you are not really who you are? Right. That you will do things that you would not ordinarily do without a second thought. That's right. That's right. Well, you seem to have 
done a really bang up job. And I really compliment and applaud your editor for that as well, because this seems to have been received as one of the most personal and insightful deep dives into what it feels like to to be a Scientologist and a Sea Org member. And that's and that's really well done on your part for for getting all of that in there, you know, to make it a very human story, not just the facts, ma'am, you know. Right. Right. And and that's what I wanted, Chris. You know, there is two things that or three things I want to accomplish with this book. Mm-hmm. One, I wanted it to be a record for my children, for yeah. Taryn and Benjamin. Um, and that came about and was inspired by Larry Wright, who when I very early on, when I was, you know, pe- people were pestering me to write a book, I talked to Larry and I said, you know, give me your best advice. You're the best writer I know, <laughs> you know, like. You're, <laughs> He's good. And, yeah. And he said, do what is important to you, Mike. Write a book that is important to you. He said, my best book, what do you think it is? They said, Looming Tower, Going Clear. Like, or, you know, I started listing all these up. And, nope. Published a, a series of letters to my parents. That's the book I'm most proud of and I think is most important. I said, wow. And he said, knowing you and knowing your history, I think you should write a book for your children so that your children Uh actually understand who you are or were, because maybe they will not read it until after you're gone, but it will be there for them even then. And I went, Larry, that's brilliant. You, You have inspired me to do something that I think is more has more importance and significance to me than simply recounting a history. Right. So that was one thing. The other thing was I took great inspiration from the wonderful book by Tara Westover called Educated. Mm. I'm not sure if you've read it, Chris. It mm-hmm. is an amazing book about a woman who grows up in a, a very, very controlled cult life um, I, I won't go into great details. It's a, it's been a bestseller for like 10 years and people are inspired by it, even though they didn't grow up in the same sort of circumstances as she did, because she managed to overcome that. And the, the reference to educated is she got herself to college and got a degree and became like the first person in her family for who knows how long to have actually had an education. Um, I wanted this book to speak more broadly to people than just ex-Scientologists. I I don't want the book just to be for ex-Scientologists. Most of them already know. But I want people to understand that you that you know your experiences can can be seen in the experience of experiences of others and that that may help you to understand what you're going through and how to see your way clear to resolving whatever problems that you have and then i guess the third thing was I, I really want people to understand, and I start with a quote that uh, right in the beginning of the book, 
that it's never too late to change your life. No matter how bad things are, whether you're in a cult, whether you're in a bad relationship, a bad job, whatever, you know, if, if people like you and I can escape from this mind prison at the advanced age, me far more advanced than you, but <laughs> nevertheless, we're not, we weren't, you know, 21 year olds walking out of college going to find a job. That's we right. walked out of an uh, environment at, you know, middle to late age and had to start anew and yeah. completely abandon everything that we had known for so many years and come up with a, a, a way of making it through life and you and me and the Headleys and Aaron Smith Levin, a whole bunch of people, Tom DeVocht, Amy and Matt, you know, like our friends and the circle of people that we sort of treat as our, you know, buddies from the trenches, we've all accomplished that. Right. And given the circumstances that we were in, I think that people could look at our experiences and go, shit, if those guys can do it, I can do it. Exactly. So that's the three things that I really wanted to accomplish with this book. I I wasn't writing the book to be a a celebrity gossip rag. In fact, I spent a lot of time worrying about whether I should make any mention of celebrities at all because my fear was that the media would latch onto those things as they have and that it would be seen as just a, you know, some sort of a gossip piece, you know, right. insider tells all about celebrities. Um, but they were so, like much of my experiences was so with celebrities and there's plenty that isn't in there, but much of those experiences were so integral to my thought processes, my decision making, what, what, how did I see things in the world? And so, you know, I ended up leaving them in. I'm not sure that I don't regret it to some extent, but mm. it, I mean, it's sort of, it is what it is. Those things happened. They were part of my experience. So they're included in the book. Um, but it, it, hopefully speaks to a bigger, a, a bigger picture. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I see that's how I saw it. And I, um, and it was interesting because like, for example, you gave that example of, um, of Tom and uh, who was it? I think it was his sister and he's standing there saying, you know, Hey, she hasn't gotten me a, a girlfriend yet. And yet this was, you know, this is kind of part of your story is that this is right. happening. And then Dave takes this and runs with it. And, you know, and, and this is this is detailed in, in, in other places and obviously in the book. And so so, yeah, you have to talk about it to some degree. But, you know, the, the part that hit home for me is when you described your where your head was at when you were in London after the Sweeney affair. And you're like, you know what? I'm done. I, I've and you really described the reason that it hit me, of course, so hard is because you might as well have been describing my headspace. 
right. when I was done because right. we were at different levels. We rarely, I mean, I think once or twice I saw you when I was in the Sea Org right. off of the stage, right? And, and yet to have your thoughts and my thoughts, because I remember very clearly, just like you do, right, when I left. And when, when, what was, where was I at? And it was the same place. And I was, I almost fell out of my chair. It's like, wow, he nailed it. That's, 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 you know, and that's that commonality of experience, even though all the things that led up to that were different for you than they were for me. Yes. You know, we had that same place. Well, I had totally forgotten, Chris, that I still had a copy of that letter that I had written, you know, my my resignation letter or my, you know, I give up letter. Yeah. And, you know, when, when I pulled that out and my editor read it, she was like, Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) That, that, wow. (laughs) That, that really kind of said it all, you know, we have to include that in there. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things that, that I, had or had written or had documents about that I put in and then was like, no, we just can't, we've got to keep this moving along. People like we can't get too lost in the weeds. I mean, there's so many weeds in my life (laughs) that it's like absurd how many tangents I could have gone off in on various things that happened at various times. You know, I've got a whole list of things that I didn't include in the book. And, you know, I don't regret that, that they're not in the book, but there were some that were like, okay, this is really very, this is a moment and it is very um, telling. It, that one little letter there tells an entire story. Yes. And, you know, it's like five paragraphs and it, it like, I'm done. I, I'm hopeless. I give up. There's nothing more for me here. I can't, I can't go on, you know, so sayonara, I wish you well. Yeah. Um, but that, that it sort of shocked me when I read it again, in some ways, like mm-hmm. how, how, um, low I had sunk, you know, yeah. you know what I mean, Chris? Like yep. just, how pathetically, desperately hopeless I was. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm trying to stand in front of cameras and act like I'm the tough, you know, <laughs> Scientology's wonderful. Exactly. Looking, meanwhile, looking you like, look a, like, looking you, like just, a, you just stepped out of Auschwitz. <laughs> I mean, it was, exactly. Looking like I just stepped out of Auschwitz. Yeah. I, I mean, I look back at the, at that film and I'm like, damn, Mike. I mean, you were, I mean, sallow. It was like, it was bad. It was, yes. you looked really unhealthy. And, and I, and I was so used to it back then that I didn't see, I mean, I looked at it again recently and I was like, holy shit. You know, cause our views change over time. And, right. and that's of course, uh, Beautiful segue to the next thing I want to ask you about, which was from, well, from that time, right? You have that letter, you have that moment encapsulated, that little uh, little time capsule there. I kind of wish I had something like that because, of course, when I left, like you, I didn't leave with anything. You know, I I mean, I I have 
some reports and my production record in life history. That's what I left with. <laughs> I managed to get it out on a stick, you know, but I was not even thinking with talking about Scientology, starting a channel. None of this, of course, of course. Of this, you know, was in our head. Farthest thing from your mind. Yeah, farthest thing, right? Um, so looking at your time then, your headspace yep. then, right? And all the years and all the things that have happened because your journey out, I mean, you were connected with Marty. There was a little independent Scientology thing for a little while. Then there was then there was uh, the St. Pete Times, right? That fantastic expose that you guys uh, helped make happen. There was all the exposure. Leah comes out. We, you know, we see the documentaries. All of this stuff you are very tightly in, involved in or connected with in some way. And I, what I'm wondering is, how do you see your journey, your recovery journey through all of that? How do you see yourself now versus then? Okay, great question, Chris. Um, it was a process. And, you know, Janice always says it's peeling the onion, peeling the yep. onion. And, yep. you know, that's a very, very apt analogy because when I first got out, I wasn't willing to talk about anything. I didn't want to. I just wanted to live a life of peace. You know, I describe in there, I was worried about, I was in touch with my mother, even though she was still a Scientologist and we didn't talk Scientology, but, you know, it was kind of good roads, fair roads, good weather, good roads, fair weather, whatever the thing is. <laughs> right. I can't remember now. Right. Thank God. Yeah, right. Um, isn't, it, isn't it nice when it starts fading? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. It is nice. That's what I said. Yeah. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, and Ultimately, what happened was I was approached by Tom Tobin and Joe Childs, who had been interviewing, who had tracked down and were interviewing Marty, and Marty was telling them a whole bunch of stuff, and the only person that could could verify much of what Marty was saying was me, and they mm -hmm. reached out to me. Long story short, you know, it's all covered. This sort of history is covered in the book. I wasn't willing to go on the record. I didn't want my mother to get upset, blah, 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 blah. And then Scientology sent Monique Yingling to try and strung on me with Bill Walsh and Tommy Davis and blah, blah, blah. And then I went, okay, I'm going on the record. But at that time, and for some years after 2000, I left in 2007, uh, and in 2009, I was still considering myself very much a Scientologist, right. not a Sea Org member, not a supporter of David Miscavige or the organizational structure, but a Scientologist. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the independent movement. There was these independent Scientologists, which is what I considered I was. I even married Marty and Mosey as the first uh, Minister of the Independent Church of Scientology. Oh, wow. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, uh. You know, Scientology makes a big deal about this now. Like, oh, you know, this guy's a liar and he's a fake and he's a fraud and he's a blah, blah, blah. I mean, literally, you can go and register yourself as a minister and just say, what's what church are you affiliated with? The Independent Church of Scientology. And they go, okay. <laughs> and... Marty and I knew that this would piss off Scientology no end. Yeah. 
So that was the thing. And we had these gatherings and, you know, we met on July 4th, Independence Day, and a bunch of people came from around the country and a lot of my old friends. And, you know, it was sort of a, it was a bit of a social club for people who had been through similar experiences to us. Mm -hmm. And, and at the time I was even still doing solo knots auditing. I was like auditing away. Oh, really? I didn't know you'd gotten that far. Okay. Yes. And you know, I in fact helped with Jim Logan create the check sheet for the independent solo nuts auditor course. Wow. Wow. And that's and for for the uninitiated solo nuts is OT level 7. It's the the step right below the top level that's available in Scientology. So it's pretty high up there. Right. Yeah. So but and I talk about this in the book too. The the sort of thing that I that finally broke the the Hubbard mesmerization mm-hmm. was reading uh, Russell Miller's Madman or Messiah. Oh, Bare was that Bareface Messiah? Bareface Messiah. Bareface Bare Messiah. Messiah. Yeah, sorry. Madman or Messiah is uh, Ben <laughs> Corden's book. Right. It's it's Bareface Messiah. Um which is a wonderfully detailed, researched, thorough dismantling of the myth of L. Ron Hubbard. Big time. Big time. Um, Although, you know, I, when I was in Scientology, I was led to believe that, that, Russell Miller was just, you know, the evil incarnate who was just a hater and a this and a that. You know, his his biography in many ways is very even-handed. Mm-hmm. He gives a lot of credit to Hubbard for his charisma and his storytelling abilities and his abilities to charm people. Mm-hmm. And that made, it made clear to me that, from his early life, that was the persona of L. Ron Hubbard, a bullshitter, charming bullshitter. There's the perfect sort of two-word description of L. Ron Hubbard, the charming bullshitter. There you go. Um, and that his charming bullshit had continued through Dianetics and then Scientology. Yeah. It became less charming as he sort of became... I believe more convinced that his bullshit was true Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. because, you know, he did ultimately die in a ditch like Simone Bolivar, but still trying to get rid of his BTs. That's right. You know, that's some dedication to the bullshit. That's like not a guy that's going, yeah, I pulled every, I pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. I made a shitload of money and I got away with it. Yep. That's a guy that pulled the wool over everybody's eyes, made a lot of money, and believed his own bullshit. Exactly. Pulled him over his own eyes. Exactly. <laughs> so, I, uh, I think I think the same thing. But but that book sort of broke the spell. I went, oh my God. The yeah. stories, 
the, I mean, and I talk about what it was like being with Hubbard because I was with him both on the Apollo and then at La Quinta training to be a watch messenger and, you know, at his beck and call day and night, literally day and night, all through the night, some nights. Um, he told stories about everything. Mm. And what happened was, as sort of time went on, his stories that he told, he didn't any, he, he no longer presented them as stories. He presented them as his experiences or, you know, like, I, you know, was driving a race car on uh, a planet, you know, Star Arcturus, and it was going at 3,700 miles an hour and blah, 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 blah. What had been his science fiction now became his past life recollections. Yep. And his past life recollections then became the basis for a bunch of shit in Scientology. Like, a lot of it. That's right. And he never said, I'm making up fiction stories he now started saying, this is my recollections from my incredible history and, and my particular incredible history is how I come to know so much. Because I, unlike you normal people, have perfect recall of all of my past lives and experiences. So I am able to bring them all into the world today. And this is what Hubbard actually sold. And Scientologists still believe yeah. that Hubbard, through his track of experiential uh, shit, knows the answers to everything because he has already answered them before in previous lifetimes. He knows how computers can run a planet. So he's going to lay it all out and it's Prince Chug and the blah, blah. That's and, you right. know, all That's this, right. all this crazy stuff and right. present it as absolute truth. And Scientologists believe it. My moment was when I was reading Russell's book and going, wait a minute, there is no difference between the slaves of sleep and fear and old Doc Methuselah or whatever and Lord Zenu and Chug and, uh, you know, this is why you run around the pole because, you know, in past lives I used to go circle a star and blah and distimulated and align my flows and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I went, yeah. wait. This is exactly the same. Right. And so I, it just sort of went, oh, kaboom. And that took until like, I don't know, 2013 or 14 maybe. I don't remember exactly when that was, but it was sometime in that zone. So it took like seven years. It took, it took longer to get out of the Hubbard spell than it did to get out of the Scientology spell. You know, again, I have to comment on a parallel here because I wasn't looking for this, but this sim, same, same, I, I, it took me a long time. It didn't take me very long to get out of the Scientology. The nails were in the coffin within about four months of me leaving the Sea Org and diving down the internet and, and finding out OT3 and all of that. But for years, 
John Atak and I actually even got into a fight one time about this. Not a real serious one, but a, but a, certainly a disagreement about whether Hubbard was actually a good guy or not, whether he actually had any good intentions or not. And, and it took me reading Madman or Messiah as well as Barefaced Messiah to dump all of those ideas. Because, yes. and here's where I'm going to now do with you what I did with everybody I ever met in the Sea Org who knew L. Ron Hubbard, <laughs> which is, what was he like? And you've said storyteller, you know, charlatan, et cetera. What else? What was he like as a person? You were with him or around <clears throat> him or served him for literally years. I mean, I'm sure he was all over the place in terms of his moods. Oh, absolutely. But, but. You know, I describe him as larger than life. Mm -hmm. um, he was, there. Was, there's no question he was charismatic. Mm -hmm. When he walked into a room, everybody knew he was there. It wasn't like he could walk in and then sudden, you know, 10 minutes later, you'd notice him. Mm -hmm. He walked in and instantly you knew someone had walked into the room who had a big presence. Yeah. And he was a large guy you know he had a sense of humor he was funny about stuff he laughed pretty often he wasn't like he wasn't all hellfire and brimstone mm. but on the other hand he could be laughing one minute and then five seconds later fly into a an absolute rage of screaming and throwing papers and like just losing it over things that that you know weren't would really warrant that sort of reaction. Mm. Let me put it that way. Sure. Um, I do believe that, unlike David Miscavige, he had some concern about helping other people. Mm. Like he really genuinely, and particularly his messengers, like he used to go out of his way to send messages on, on their vacations and make sure that they had a great time or throw little parties for them or take them out to dinner or whatever. Mm. And you can, you know, sort of cynically look at it and go, well, yeah, because they were all good looking young girls, which is sort of the, the, you know, the rap that he's had on this, but it, ne it never came across that way to me. And, you know, you probably need to talk to the young girls and ask them about it rather than me, because I didn't have that experience. So he had redeeming qualities. Some like he was also a malignant narcissist. He also considered that every every slight or every every question or every raised eyebrow or dirty look was uh, an absolute affront to his dignity, his genius, and his his gifts to mankind. You know, like pretty pretty uh pretty uh radically convinced that he is 
or was the savior of all mankind and that anybody that didn't see it that way was an enemy of mankind. Yeah. And that is pretty, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you just take that as a statement, that's like, that's lunatic material. Yeah. Really? Yeah. But like I said, he was sort of a, a gregarious personality. Not like David Miscavige. David Miscavige is just a sociopath. He doesn't have any real redeeming qualities. He can be David Miscavige. Don't get me wrong. He can be charming when needed. Like if he goes to a movie premiere with Tom Cruise, he is Mr. Charm. Oh, so wonderful to see you. You're looking wonderful tonight. Oh, (laughs) smiley, smiley, lovey dovey with, you know, directors and actors and whoever is around and he will do the same thing even with public Scientologists on the free wins. Like they all think he's just like the nicest guy. He's always so interested in what they're doing and it's all bullshit. It's all just PR bullshit. And it's right. You know, as Martha Stelt describes in her wonderful book, the sociopath next door, Mm -hmm. this is, one of the skills of a sociopath that by the way, Chris was the other book that had an enormous impact on me. And the third one was Victor Frankl's, um, meaning, uh, man's search for meaning. Ah, those three books, Russell Miller, Victor Frankl and Martha Martha Stout were the three books that had the greatest impact on me on my personal journey out of the the mind fuck. Nice. Nice. I definitely connect with you on the sociopath next door as well. That was a, a tremendously important work. I wanted to and of course again perfect segue here we're just growing one into another into my questions here. So I wanted to ask you about David Miscavige and yeah. You have had more FaceTime personal experience with him than anybody I've ever talked to. And so I've so we've got to talk about this. And that is when you first when did you first meet him back in the day? And what was he like then? And because I understand he changed after Hubbard died. Is that accurate? Uh, no, he or, didn't. No, that's wrong. Okay. No, he so. just became more more overt. Okay. Um, what was he like? When did I, mean, when did I, f- I first met him just sort of a glancing blow at St. Hill way back in the early 70s before he was in the Sea Org. Oh, really? My parents were friends with Ron and Loretta Miscavige at St. Hill. And in fact, David's twin sister did my integrity processing, which was required sec checking for me to go to the Apollo. Wow. Because she was an intern at the time. Okay. But I didn't really have any interaction with Dave, just sort of, you know, I saw him. I said, uh, you know, when he arrived in the Sea Org, was right after he turned 16 and he no longer had to go to school. And he came. And at the time, I was being, and I described this in the book, I was being the external comm aide. I was in charge of the communications between all Scientology organizations around the world, and FLAG. And David 
came into the Sea Org and instantly went into what was called the LRH external comm unit. At the time, we were in Clearwater. Hubbard was living in Dunedin, up the, you know, the next town up from Clearwater in a secure location so that nobody could find him and serve him with process. And the communications that would come in from around the world would come into external comm, which I ran, and then anything for Hubbard would be delivered to the LRH external comm, which was in the office next door through a locked door. Okay. And those people were super secretive and they, you know, they snuck out and drove the stuff up to Hubbard in Dunedin without anybody noticing who they were or where they were going, blah, 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 blah. Miscavige used to come and open the door and he was a, an asshole from the day he first arrived. Really? He was very um, confrontational and sort of full of himself. Um, you know, I'm in LRH external comm, you're not. I'm uh, a, a Commodore's <laughs> messenger and you're not. Even though he's right. like the brand new guy. Right. I mean, this was a thing that used to happen and it sort of changed. On the Apollo, it didn't matter what big shit you were. When you arrived at the Apollo, you were at the bottom of the barrel. I remember this woman, uh, Judy Spear, who came one time and she was the commanding officer of Europe. And Europe was the most booming Scientology continent. And she arrived on the Apollo and thought that she had some big status there. And she walked on and she got chewed up and spat out in like three days by the lowliest people in the flag bureau. You know, the telex operators and the, you know, the admins and the people that worked in treasury. Give her the time of day. Uh, but that changed when we got to, to Florida and it became sort of uh, a little different. And so right from the outset, he was like that. And then he fairly soon Hubbard left and went to California. And then he went and, and moved to the ranch at La Quinta where he started filming the films and did yeah. TR zero to four, the yeah. TRs film, the only film he ever did. Actually, the only film Hubbard ever actually directed and scripted, directed, and filmed. All oh. of the other tech films he did not do. Really? Yes. That's interesting. That was the one with Dan Dan yeah. Kuhn, yep. Gary Armstrong, Laurel Watson, all of the people that <laughs> Marcus Swanson, all the people that have left and any in any event. That's just an aside. So Dave ended up going to La Quinta. Uh, you know, he was a perfect candidate. A lot of the people who ended up in the Commodore's Messenger Org were second-generation Scientologists yeah. because they qualified. They never had taken drugs. They never, you know, they had like a totally clean life history so they could qualify to go be with Hubbard. Mm. So he went there and became a cameraman to begin with. All of the people in the Commodore's Messenger Org were in the Cineorg, because that's what Hubbard was doing. Um, you know, in some respects, he established himself at that point as, you know, I think that Hubbard saw him as an up-and-comer and like a guy who would kind of do anything. He also got in a lot of trouble and ended up being assigned to the RPF 
or busted. And I'm not even sure if there was an RPF there. Anyway, he then became the action chief CMO International. And as the action chief, he sort of had a, a kind of a unique role, you know, for those who don't know, it's like the troubleshooter guy. Right. He's like the guy the that you go to when everything's not working the way it's supposed to, to solve the problem and handle the situation. Yep. And he demonstrated competence at that because he is a very, very driven, focused, like no nonsense, no fucking around. We're going to get this done. You're going to get it done or die in the attempt. And if you, if you don't die in the attempt, I'll kill you for failing. Yeah. You know, yep. and that was his attitude. And he, he became a trusted um, go-to guy for Hubbard and the CMO in general. But he also was, you know, his bosses were also a little scared of him because mm -hmm. like I said in there, he was like a, he wasn't at the top of the uh, billboard chart, but he was certainly had a bullet by his name heading there. And when the whole mess with the guardian's office happened because he was the action chief, it sort of fell upon him to take the actions needed and fire an observation mission to the guardian's office to find out what was going on because Hubbard was freaking out. And from there, he just became the guy. Um, I detail all of this in the book because I was intimately involved in all of that because I was the one of the people that went on that first observation mission. Mm. So he, um, he is very, very ruthless and very, very has a one track mind. What's good for Dave is the only track that he follows. Right. And he has sort of convinced those around him that what is good for Dave is good for Scientology that Dave is the one that knows that he was hand-selected by L. Ron Hubbard. And I talk about that at some length in the book, that that is a story that is just as fictional as the Hubbard, you know, willfully left his body to go continue his OT research. Right. It's the same order of magnitude of bullshit. It's a PR story that has been presented and made reality now. Dave was the selected, hand-selected successor to L. Ron Hubbard. And as I say in the book, Chris, look, you can fault Hubbard for a lot of things, but not writing and talking enough is not one of them. <laughs> I mean, right. he, he wrote and talked about every fucking thing that you can possibly imagine. And like, if he Spotted wrong, he would write an HCOB about it. If he, if he if something was happening, he'd like gather it all up and do a Ron's journal. He was prolific yes. in expressing his views and wishes to the Scientology world at all times in his life until he was about to 
positively leave his body and die. Yeah. He was going to go off to do his OT research, and he didn't record a runs journal saying, okay, Scientologists, it's time for me to move to target two. I'm right. moving on with my OT research. And <laughs> I am leaving behind some very competent people who will take care of you and the world of Scientology in my absence. Pat and Annie Broker have been with me for the last three years and blah, blah, blah. And they are appointed as the blah, 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 blah. That doesn't, doesn't exist. No. It, and there was not even a written thing exists. So that is such this, a good point. You are making such a good point right now because it's this omitted. You don't see it. Yes. It's not there. So you don't even and, think about it. But of course he would have done that. Of course, if he had been causatively moving off right. to continue his OT research, this would have been the biggest fanfare. He would have announced this like a long time in advance. I mean, he announced OT8 like 20 years before it eventually came out. Right. He was always, oh, I'm doing the, the next thing is coming. It's always it's going to be the greatest thing. It's going to solve all the problems that I promised you the last thing would solve that it really didn't. Yeah. So... <laughs> So Miscavige stepped into that vacuum yeah. and I talk in the book about there is this famous thing where, you know, it's quoted on the David, Mis who is David Miscavige site or whatever the fuck it's called, davidmiscavige.com or something about this declaration that Hubbard did about David Miscavige is my friend and, and I, and things are in good hands and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, I describe exactly how that declaration came about. Nice. And it is very interesting, and it was not a blanket endorsement of David Miscavige. It was to avoid Hubbard having to appear in court when he was sued by his son, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., right. Nibs. Right. And, the, and, and Michael Flynn and Nibs had gone, Your Honor, he's being held against his will. He's incapacitated or dead. My client has a right to, uh, you know, his his estate, so he needs to show up and prove that he's still alive. Well, that presented a real problem because Hubba wasn't going to show up anywhere to be served with process. So I describe how all this went down and what happened. That declaration was prepared by David Miscavige and the ex-attorneys who he had hired. The ex-attorneys were Hubbard's attorneys, sent to Hubbard. And he had no choice but to sign it. Right. He had one day to sign it because it was with dated ink and it had to be gotten back to the court. And he couldn't say that my affairs are in the hands of Pat and Annie Broker because they were hiding with him. Right. Exactly. So he had to say it was David Miscavige because if the court had demanded to have David Miscavige appear, David Miscavige theoretically could have appeared. Yep. Anyway, How interesting. I, I go into some detail about this. To me, this is probably the most important and enlightening part of the book for ex-Scientologists. Yeah. Because a lot of this inside stuff about what happened and the, the armed raid we did to go to this property out in Newberry Springs, which... Still to this day, nobody even knows had existed where Pat Broker used to bury vehicles. He'd dig a hole if he thought the vehicle was blown, 
dig a hole with a backhoe and drive the vehicle in there and bury it. Wow. This, this little, t- not little, this time of the death of L. Ron Hubbard to the ultimate ascension of David Miscavige is probably the story that has never been told that is told in my book. To the outside world, it's kind of, yeah, okay, whatever. It's just shit that happened. Yeah. To ex-Scientologists or Scientologists that might eventually come across this, it's pretty revelatory. Excellent. Well, I I wish I had had taken the time to get through all of that before we talked today. So I look forward to doing so it's now. <laughs> No, I just saying because it sounds interesting and it's, it's information I want to have. Yeah, well, it's I, all there for you, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna get to it. We're gonna have to wrap up shortly, and just because of the time frame. But I, there's one thing I, is, is there's so many more things I want to ask you about. But let me ask you this: because you just described David Miscavige's personality, the driven, you know, I'm gonna get everything done, laser precise direction. It sounds an awful lot like Tom Cruise. Oh, funny. And how they, people they are, describe him. You do you do you know that you know the best term to describe those two mm. is a a scientological term. It's and it's one of those weird ones. Snapped terminal. Ha! <laughs> really? Cuz you mentioned how much Miscavige kind of rubs off on crews. That's exactly right. And you know, you got to have the the basic personality to begin with, and and Tom, look, he is also a driven, focused. You know, you hear descriptions of his laser focus. He's yeah, driven. He wants to do the best. He wants to be the best. He wants to blah 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 blah. Yeah. and that that is him. But I think he has learned um, a lot of the ruthlessness of how to go about accomplishing those objectives from uh, watching and and listening and and being mentored by Dave right because he believes that he and Dave are and and Dave believes that he and Tom, are two big beings on a planet full of little beings. There we go. And that is um, sort of the best way I can I can sum up their relationship or w- what they're like. They are very very similar. Yeah, very much so. And I and I've heard enough, um, you know, eyewitness stories, testimony, whatever about how Cruz is treated in Scientology when he's with his, you know, entourage or whatever, flag, Sea Org members have to call him sir, I mean, all this sort of right. laudatory stuff that goes on with him. And you're like, wow, this could only all happen with Miscavige's blessing, of course. And so, you know, this is sort of this thing. And it leads people to believe, I think, in a kind of a ludicrous way. But I'm really curious, what's your take on this idea that Cruz is one day going to take over Scientology? Oh, I don't think that'll happen. Me neither. I, I, but uh, you know, he is far more valuable 
as a as a celebrity yep. than he is as an administrator trying to run Scientology. Exactly. That's that was my reasoning as well. You know. Um. Okay. Last one, and then I'll let you go. <laughs> um. Your podcast. You and Leah, people, I, 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 I am inundated with questions. When are Mike and Leah coming back? Do you have, okay. a, do you have an answer? I, I wish I could answer that, Chris. Okay. Because the diff, there is logistical problems that uh-huh. arose that, you know, may or may not have had something to do with a certain organization that we're all familiar with. Mm. Um, and you know, there are actions being taken to resolve those logistical problems. Um, it's not that Leah and I, we've, we recorded a bunch more podcasts. Mm. We have a bunch ready to go and release and they were recorded. They're probably old now. We'll have to do them all over again when we eventually get all this idiocy sorted out. Um, it's kind of hard because I don't really want to say anything that might jeopardize being able to res- sort out what needs to be sorted out. Okay. So makes sense. That that's what makes it difficult and hard to say anything to people. You, if you think you get asked a lot, <laughs> yeah. Christ, I, I wish I could just come out and say, look, we've just abandoned the whole thing. It was a waste of time or something have some answer that was definitive because there isn't really a definitive answer right now other than we, people ask, oh, have you been intimidated into silence? Mm, no. 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 No, never. Won't happen. No. Out of all the things, out of all the scenarios I thought might be going on, that was never on the list. <laughs> yeah no yeah no you yeah guys, i've done uh, more i've done more media and podcasts in the last week and a half than i have in my entire life yeah exactly so. i've been seeing you all over the place so <laughs> yeah no mike mike and lee are not people who are going to become intimidated right. um oh and i have so i mean i want to do anyway yeah we have i have so many more questions for you and and i know and i respect your time and i know you've been blitzing right now and so i want to um to let you go and we will maybe after all this is over i can come back around and we can we can do another episode or two I, i'm always happy to talk to you chris awesome like you know ha- <laughs> happy awesome it's, it's enjoyable i i feel the same I, I i this has been great uh okay well let's go ahead and wrap up then and i will uh, again here uh for those of you who uh still haven't quite gotten the idea mike's book a billion years my escape from a life in the highest ranks of scientology available on amazon and other places where books are sold audio version uh printed version get it read it you will not be sorry uh and that all being said mike again thank you very much for taking the time you're welcome, Chris. Lovely to see you. Awesome. And folks out there, if you are enjoying the show, enjoying my channel, thinking that this is something worth supporting, please do so. And of course, subscribe and share it around on those interwebs. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.